0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production.
1: I was enamored as a child consuming animation, and then that developed into me wondering, okay, how is the pie made? You know what I mean? Like, who's behind the curtain? You know what I mean? And that's how I discovered all the black, incredible black animators there are.
2: Welcome back to the last episode of season three, Black Tea. And Mel, what's what's happening over there? How are you feeling?
0: I am so tired. This week feels fake. Like this morning felt fake. We'll get to it later. But like even the article we were supposed to discuss later, I couldn't find it. Like, I'm just really tired. This doesn't even feel real right now, Dalton. Like, is this like, is this beautiful mind? Like, are we really recording it? Perhaps it's
2: post Kanye West uh, drink champs, uh,
0: you know, symptoms, you know. Right, right, right. Okay, so Kanye did that drink champs. And, like, every time I get really depressed and I need mm -hmm. something to do, there's always something to do on YouTube. I I find YouTube to be um, probably number three after therapy and, like, (laughs) just other mental health resources. I'm always on YouTube if I'm not feeling well. So Kanye did that. I think it dropped on Saturday night, but I was, like, browsing YouTube, watching, like, Hollywood Unlocked or something, and I watched it in full, so I guess we'll just talk about it. Did you listen to Kanye's Drink Champs interview? And Drink Champs is a podcast hosted by Noriega and another guy whose name I don't know.
2: That is correct. Yeah, no, I did uh, check it out, um, and I, I had to check it out. I mean, it's it's it's, it's Kanye West, you know, or sorry, Ye, because he's going through a name change. Ye, you know, basically demonstrated to us that he... Uh, marches to the beat of his own drummer uh that's for sure um and uh yeah he had some he's for me kind of like that you know textbook um yeah idiot savant i mean he said some things in there there's a lot of wildly when you
0: have when you have a when you have a billion dollars and we don't know if you're taking care of yourself, this is what he does. He goes on streams of consciousness. Some make sense, some don't. But if he wasn't a billionaire, we wouldn't think he's smart. We'd just be like, what is this guy talking about? Like, for example, when he was telling saying that Soldier Boy's verse wasn't good on Donda, he didn't elaborate because he just wanted to get the soundbite out there. But then when he was critiquing Saturday Night Live... And saying that, like, Kim talked about the divorce, which the most offensive thing she did was disrespect Nicole Brown Simpson and joke about OJ. But those Kanye jokes weren't really good. I really don't think they were good. I don't really love a woman saying, I married the richest black man in America, like a white woman. It wasn't like, everybody loved that. But Kanye basically blamed SNL and said he hasn't seen the divorce papers. But I wrote an article in February that said that they both... Got the divorce going, and they signed. So he's not even telling the truth. But we all just think, like, oh my god, Kanye's so smart because he said he didn't sign his divorce papers. Like they're signed, Kanye. <laughs> TMZ published them. Right. Like, I mean, my whole thing is like, at least make it the truth. How is he a genius?
2: Yeah, I mean, he say he's he's uh, talking about some concepts that I think. Well, uh, Look
0: what he did to Big Sean. He said my biggest mistake was signing him. On my
1: tombstone, it's going to say, "I deserve to be here because I signed Big Sean." <laughs>
0: And they were just hanging out and Big Sean tweeted a picture of it. And it's just like, oh, my God, you're such a genius, Kanye. So now Big Sean's going to go on Drink Champ. So it's just like, again, am I supposed to be celebrating this?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Any Kanye interview is worth celebrating. Um, you know, he's, you know, again, again, I think there's some concepts in there that, uh, you know, there's, you know, some aspects of our community might not get now. Um, tied to uh, ownership. Uh, and you know, there's just things in there that, again, a lot of it's going to go it's going to go over the head of the vast majority, you know, but it's fine,
0: of course. he likes to sneak in those gems on the book ends of these wild statements so we don't talk about them. But yeah, he was talking about ownership when he started doing fashion. That's why he owns everything. yeah, so that yeah, would wouldn't yeah. it be nice if Kanye sat down and did an interview about that so we could hear him clearly? Because that's not my fault that I didn't hear him. Like, I want to talk about Big Sean because that's was the soundbite. That's Kanye's fault.
2: Yeah, and it's supposed to be. I think he wants to be, you know, intentionally messy and, uh, you know, and say a bunch of things that are just provocative and, uh, you know, really smart. Well,
0: I'm offended. It's beyond, it's beyond provocative when you say it was a, it was a mistake to sign the man and basically mm-hmm. what it looks like. And Big Sean probably didn't want to go public with it, but it looks like some record deal and apparently he's lost millions. And Kanye was like, oh, I was there with your family. I was there with your mom. It's like, 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 yeah, if people are getting it from the dirt and you sign them, yeah, you're going to know their family. But if you really, like, embezzled $3 million from him as Kanye West, and now you're saying he was the mistake, like, bruh, you're the mistake. Like, Kanye, let's let's do better. I think he's like, what, isn't he 40 now? Like, let's do better at 40.
2: And I think once he donned that... uh... The red hat. Um, I think he'd lost a, a lot of credibility, oh, yeah. the community, but yeah, but I take again, equal parts. I sort of, I don't, uh, you know, for Kanye is, is not black and white for me, neither is, uh, you know, Big Sean nor John Legend. There are some parts of John Legend I think are a joke. And others, yeah.
0: Well, that's what he said. Big Sean and John Legend, they went with the Democrats and threw me under the bus. But I don't like John Legend's music. I think it's boring. And anybody that could love Chrissy Teigen that much, like there's something wrong with them. And Big Sean, I love his music. I don't like his albums, but I like his collabs. But if he, lo- if, Kanye- if Kanye didn't pay him, he deserves to get paid because he's doing a job. So that's <laughs> my whole thing about Sean. I don't have to love Sean as a rapper to think that he should be compensated for his work. And like, why are we talking about this? Because Kanye said it. So again, (laughs) I just think that he could use some good PR. I know he was saying that he doesn't like Kim's publicist, but I think it's Tracy Romolos, who used to be his publicist. So you need a publicist again, Kanye.
2: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And Kanye is not, um, you know, unlike many uh, public figures, uh, both in and outside of our community, he, he can't be controlled.
0: He's just a man that doesn't know how to stop talking.
2: Well, I mean, I think <laughs> beyond that, I mean, and, you know, back to the music, I mean, you know, so his music is, uh, you know, it's, it's it's really good. He's a good musician, good producer. Good He's amazing.
0: Rapper. And Don does a great album. It reminds me of um, The Life of Pablo. So shout out to Kanye for being really confusing and trying to control what we consume. Like, I'd love it if you could just choose album whatever he's doing in terms of like architecture and art, and then that's it. Like I just feel like when we get caught up in this, that's Kanye's fault. He's because he's controlling the news cycle around himself.
2: That's right. And it's perfectly okay and understandable to both love and hate Kanye. Um, you know, as human beings we're we are complex, contradictory, you know, humans, right? So I'm I'm okay with that. Well he or,
0: said know, in I love Kanye, he 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 wants that. He wants us to, you know, debate it. So yeah, Kanye is a complex dude and um, he enjoys when we unpack him. So good for him.
2: That's right. Hooray Kanye. <laughs> I mean, yay.
0: <laughs> exactly.
2: That's enough yay for today. Um, anyways, we're going to get into this uh, fantastic interview we uh, conducted with uh, G Garima. And he's an animator based out of Toronto, Canada. And this this young man has done so much uh, fantastic work. He's worked with Marvel Comics he he provided the animation and, and some of the creative inspiration behind a new series that's coming out on CBC Gem called Big Blue. And uh, so tune in.
0: So as more Canadians increasingly join the fight against climate change and with COP26 drawing worldwide attention to the climate crisis... One new kids series created by Toronto-based Ghanaian-Canadian animator, who we have today, Jima Gariba, will help children and their families understand climate change and teach them about the importance of taking care of our planet and each other. Grammy award-winning producer Timberland and his Beat club team produced a the series theme song titled Big Blue, the animated sci-fi comedy will make its world premiere on CBC and CBC Gem. Created by Jima Gariba, named one of 15 Young and af- African Creatives Rebranding Africa by Forbes, who has designed covers for Marvel Comics and also has a massive online following for his distinct illustrative style, Big Blue is an imaginative series that follows sibling underwater adventures Letty and Limo, inspired by Gima's own siblings, who lead a quirky submarine crew with a magical ocean fairy stoneaway named Beacon Barry. Jima's Breaking Barriers is one of the few Black children's animators in Canada. Not to mention, he's also redefining what the next generation of climate change activists look like. So um, welcome to the show, Jima. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me. One of the first things I wanted to ask you is about actually an article I read that Huda Hassan wrote in CBC Arts in July. And it's entitled How Jima Griba is Using Caricature to Push for a More Empathetic World. And it's an incredibly dense article about like an anti-gay bill in Ghana, your art. It's just a great interview. I was wondering if you could sort of talk about that process and this article.
1: I mean, talking to Huda is great. It was a really great interview. She's like one of the best people ever. Writes really great stuff. I think the basis of the interview is really just talking about this anti-LGBTQ bill that's been kind of presented in Ghana over the last Mm -hmm. couple of years. Uh, Mm -hmm. I am Ghanaian. I was born and raised there. So this is the connection to this bill. And I'm also a queer person. I think the article is really just about um, what everyone can do to kind of raise awareness about how archaic and damaging Um, Those laws can be, especially in places like Ghana where uh, the LGBTQ community don't have any kind of protections against violence. Um, Yeah, just kind of amplifying it as much as possible, like on the world stage to just say that like these little things are like the tiny pieces of legislation that if they get ignored become part of like society and more and more difficult to entangle with time you know what i mean it's like kind of like excuse my french like calling bullshit on some of the things that people try to pass underneath uh your nose as you're just moving through like this difficult time and these in this like kind of transformative last couple of years we've had um and uh yeah just campaigning for a better future
0: Well, one of the things that I love, sorry, uh, about this article is that the way Huda frames it, and she says she spoke with you about your two recent pieces using illustrations to provoke conversations about sexuality in Africa, how we can collectively transform our empathy into direct action. And we're going to link this article so you guys can read it too. The listeners can read it. And it's just these beautiful pieces that you drew. I was just wondering if you could talk about them. Yeah, thank you.
1: I was lucky enough, like from a really young age to like, understand what I wanted my calling to be and what I felt drawn to as like a person, which is like visual arts and like just the medium of like visual representation of storytelling. And I feel like, uh, in a lot of my work, like in the different mediums that I use, I really like to kind of use it to be transportive in the sense that, uh, with all of this LGBTQ activism and things like that like i think what the media tries to do is to sexualize it or to vilify it
0: i mean it has to be something it has to be provoke something it just can't be
1: it just can't be so i think <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the imagery that's created around it is like highlighting parts of it that i don't necessarily have a connection to like when i when i think about my queerness and i think about love i think about things that are soft tender ethereal like Extremely delicate, you know what I mean? So I feel like creating work that is, like, overtly queer and that kind of embodies the gentler side of what it looks like can open the conversation in a different way surrounding, like, representation and people seeing themselves as Africans and as queer, you know?
2: You just talked about this idea of representation. Now, you know, I'm a father of two children and my my kids grew up watching intentionally watching shows like dora the explorer you know um hip-hop harry and these are shows that you know that was intentional on my part because uh um you know my kids are both black and then you know this idea of having them watch you know mostly all white characters was a bit problematic in my opinion so can you sort of expand on this idea you know this idea around having a diverse animated cast attached to this show because
1: that's just glaring and obvious and amazing Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, like a lot of like what you're mentioning, like having your kids consume content that only features children that don't necessarily look like them is something that personally I had to deal with growing up is just like having to project myself into fantasy worlds where they're just, I just didn't see myself in them. You know what I mean? Like if I was a fan of Lord of the Rings, I would have to. Imagine the character that looked like me in order for me to be a part of that world, Mm
2: -hmm, you know? Totally.
1: So, um, with this show, like, I thought it was such an amazing opportunity to finally, like, present a property where the seat for the Black kids is reserved instead of them having to build their own. You know what I mean? Where it's like, yeah, you can sit right here. Like, your spot is... You belong. You you belong here. You know what I mean? Especially especially it being a sci-fi show. I thought that was a very specific thing that I wanted also, is that, like, yeah, like, I would like to... I want to see them, like, use their futuristic shell phones underwater and, like, use, like, all these futuristic, like, devices and things like that because that's always something that I had to do for myself. Like... The first few Star Wars that came out, you're like, oh, it would be so cool, like, to have more, you know, more Samuel, (laughs) more Samuel L. Jacksons, you know. Right, we didn't know, we didn't
0: know. I mean, you know what I mean? I think it would would be be. good on Earth if we had a bunch of Samuels just running around. (laughs) But you're absolutely right for one show.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, like with any show that I remember watching as a kid, I was, I would always like Dragon Ball or like Pokemon, like. You get characters that you can kind of project yourself onto, like Brock. Like, I'm not even sure where Brock is from. But, like, to really see yourself represented is just, like, something that I thought would, would be nice. It'd be fun. And the potential for dreaming is, like, amplified tenfold. You're like, oh, I don't have to... I don't have to think about the part where I'm in the show. I'm already in the show and I can just think right. about everything else that I like about it. You know,
0: That's so interesting because I was about to say dream, right? Like it's these things that we can actually dream. Like our dreams can come true. We have the ability to dream. To me, that's what real freedom is. So not to be super emo and deep about Big Blue because I watched an episode as well. It's pretty silly. I thought it was. Yeah, but it's great because it it explains, you know, climate change, something that I'm familiar with, but it is scary even as an adult and I like the yeah. fact that kids are interested in it because we have to create a better world. So how do you feel about sort of that intersection using your art for that message in the show?
1: Uh Yeah, I think uh, just with the medium of animation, it's a really great way to kind of just like put forward like metaphors about like bigger concepts. So in terms of like the themes of the show, yeah, like empathy for your environment is a really heady concept. But what if Mother Nature wasn't so much of like a matriarch or something that's like looming? And what if it was just your little sister, your goofy little sister? And especially with the medium of animation, you can... You can take a concept and then embody it in a character just to have a one-to-one, like a good versus evil story all of a sudden has so much more nuance. Like your best friend being a dolphin all of a sudden is more is about a relationship with animals. But yeah, it's just about trying to tell like really true stories with as many like goofy elements as possible so it doesn't feel too... uh like too much. So it doesn't feel like too much, you know, like just having fun talking about important things.
2: Yeah. And, and the interesting thing with your, you know, with, with the show, you know, Big Blue, it, you know, it is very uh, timely and topical. And the reason I say that is, I mean, you would have have to be, have been sleeping under a rock to not notice that, um, you know, even this weekend, you know, all eyes have been on Scotland, right? It's like the, it was the first week of the UN climate conference, right? Known as Mm -hmm. COP26. And, you know, they said the conference was apparently delayed by a year because of the pandemic, but um, you know, this is a massive international undertaking that that has seen countries uh, recommit to tackling the climate crisis and rising global temperatures. And it was interesting. Yeah. I was watching the protests in Toronto, you know, where we're where based and- um, yeah. And I, so I'm watching the climate change weekend protests and I kind of, I honestly saw like very few black people out there. I got to be honest. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, if anyone, if you scan the crowds and, I, and I'm just wondering, I mean, I scan every crowd looking for black people, but that's just me. Um, but uh,
1: <laughs> they're razor focus a little.
0: I'm always looking for, bl- I'm always looking for black men, black men, black yeah. women, but usually men. Yeah. Anyway.
2: Do you, do you want to expand on that, Mel? Black men? Come on. Are you, are oh, single. Yeah, but you're talking
0: about, oh, I'm looking into a crowd. Like if I'm looking into a crowd, I'm looking for a man. And like, no offense.
2: <laughs> totally. <laughs> now, 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 Gima, now it's not like, you know, you're not a climate activist per se, but rather like all Canadians, you're, you know, you're doing your part to to fight against climate change, you know, vis-a-vis yeah. the show. But, um, but, but do you think, you know, climate change activisms and issues, are they a priority in our community? You know, whether it
1: be in Ghana, where you grew up in Toronto, where you are now, like, what do, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not an expert by any stretch, but I do really, really think that, Part of what is holding us back is like not being able to see that most of these things are like extremely interconnected. So like it's not so much specifically about climate change. But it's more about like my relationship with my community and my relationship with the world I live in. Like it's more one to one. You know what I mean? Like I always think of it from the perspective of like just me as an individual. And I know that growing up in Ghana, the only thing that was holding me and my friends back from feeling like we lived in a utopia was, well, one of many um, homophobia, and then further the pollution the littering in the oceans like we'd be going boogie boarding and then there would be plastic bags like slapping us in the face you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and when I think back on my life and I think about being a child like I could never understand why us as Ghanaians place so much value on like going to like Ibiza or whatever but couldn't cultivate that same relationship with the environment that was immediately around us and I think that happens all over the world you know what I mean like
0: that's so interesting
1: yeah and I think and it's and I think that's that was my entryway into it being like I yeah. think if everybody just thinks about it in that way like you could have your utopia and your immediate community could like thrive so much from it.
0: Like, what you made me think of was indigenous people. Like they could actually yeah. be teaching us how to be at one with the land. Like that's what I started thinking when like making and, those connections to home and land, even food.
1: Totally, totally. All those things are interconnected. And even um, just like you said before, like not to be like a conspiracy theorist and things like that, but it's like a climate crisis conversation being delayed because of a global pandemic feels like there's a larger, <laughs> there's a larger health, and wellness issue in the world. Feels like that, passing
0: the buck, feels like yeah, passing the buck.
1: And that it 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 feels like the common denominator is the lack of care in communities or like the lack of visibility or like the lack of listening to these communities or something. I'm just trying to figure out the common denominator between all of these things and like find the best thing to connect them back together, you know?
0: I think you hit it spot
1: on.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah. And we have to make those connect, you know, connections and, at, at, you know, apply it to our day to day, you know, like I always talk, you For know, sure, yeah. Yeah, just like education, like you can do, you know, go to yeah. university, college, yeah. do graduate work, yeah. whatever. Um, but, it, you know, I think with students, you know, they're struggling. If you can't connect it to your day to day, it's just like, it's a, it's going to feel like a chore, you know, reading about climate change is going to feel like an absolute chore. Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally.
1: Yeah. Like I think about it all the time in terms of like talking to my nieces and nephews, like If you can't explain it to my niece, who's six now, or my nephew, who's like three, do you really know it? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, to be able to have the conversation with them, you know what I mean? In a way that's not super daunting or like not hidden behind academic or like unburdened by academic jargon to make it not Mm -hmm. feel like it's like you have to you have to graduate from Harvard in order to do anything helpful. I think that's nonsense. I think I hear you. Yeah, I think you can start the conversation really early and really casually. Yeah,
2: I totally agree. I mean, even speaking of that like uh, you know, our show is is uh serves as a bit of a platform around black excellence and uh, you know, you've d- you've done some You're you know, you're a young-ish guy and like you've d- like your career started before you graduated from Sheridan College when you uh, joined the character design team for Black Dynamite. Like that Black yeah. Dynamite is off the charts. Um, <laughs> like, how, like, so can you talk to us even just about being a you know, uh, you know, an accomplished young animator who's designed covers for Marvel Comics, you know, which I grew up like I'm a comic book junkie, and uh, all of these great accolades. Forbes Magazine they they named you one of uh, 15 young African creatives rebranding Africa a couple of years ago. When you were wanted to become an animator, can you sort of walk us through some of your early inspirations? Because I I, I suspect that uh, there aren't a lot of of major black animators that we're just seeing out there, like in Canada, for example, like if you were to ask me, mm-hmm. do I know any, uh, you know, accomplished, celebrated, uh, black animators in Toronto or Canada in general, I I'm drawing blanks, you know? So can you sort of talk to us how you right. even got involved in animation?
1: Yeah. I think it, uh, earlier on it started from kind of the infinite potential, like me getting into animation was just about loving, loving to draw, uh, losing myself and drawing. And then later on realizing like the potential of what it was like the potential of creating a brand new world on paper. Like I was talking to you about a little bit earlier, like when you can't see yourself in a lot of things, you start to like build the seat for yourself. And I think honing the skill of drawing and getting the things that were in my head better and better represented on a page was a very liberating feeling for me. And I think getting into animation was just, uh, like continuing that conversation. It's like, okay, yeah, I can get a still image to look exactly how I want it to look and feel. Can I make two minutes of a film feel like I want it to feel? And I think the natural progression into that was animation, just because it's a medium where you can kind of be a control freak. You can be a master of your own little universe and tell a very specific story. And I thought that potential was, like, super limitless. And in terms of uh, the Black animation scene, um, I just nerded out about animation. And one of the beautiful things about animation is that, like, if you do it correctly, it doesn't really matter who made it. You know what I mean? It feels like they're real characters at a certain point, or that's the goal, at least. You know what I mean? So there are so many amazing Black animators, but the only reasons I know about them is because... I'm really interested in the medium of animation. Mm -hmm. I was enamored as a child consuming animation, and then that developed into me wondering, okay, how is the pie made? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, who's behind the curtain? You know what I mean? And that's how I discovered all the black, incredible black animators there are. Um, So my obsession has really just driven all of my knowledge about the medium, but there are countless... There are countless, countless, countless amazing Black animators. In Toronto alone, um, there's an animator named uh, Shaz Lim, who does incredible shorts. Uh, Freddie Carrasco is an incredible animator. He made a comic book called Gleam that just won a bunch of awards. Um, He's actually the inspiration for one of the characters, the turtle Freddie, in the show, because we came up together working in animation and things. And Shaz... Animated one of the dances from uh, the intro. Um, yeah, whenever possible, like we try to like uplift each other and work together and like just find ways for us all to rise at the same time because it's the nature of the medium for you to be kind of behind be behind the veil. Like it's by design that animators and black all the some of the most iconic black artists are hidden behind the veil of animation. I think even yeah. for Little Mermaid, one of the most iconic scenes in Little Mermaid was animated by like a black man or like I the was about final, to say was, are you talking but, like, about Sebastian,
0: Sebastian being Jamaican or something different?
1: No, something totally different. Like the draftsman, like one of the people <laughs> who drew her like closer to her final design was like a black animator and he's done oh. like countless amazing things. So yeah, I think I think we're out there. It just takes a little bit of digging and I've had a lot of great mentors uh that have been yeah. Uplifting, encouraging every step of the way. Yeah.
2: During this interview, you're talking to us about you're referencing sort of community, a community of animators, you know, that might happen to be racialized. You're referencing your family. Um, a couple of the main characters in Big Blue are actually inspired by your own siblings. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, the initial nugget of the idea was really based on uh, my family. Um, so I do have an older sister named Letty. I have an older brother named Lemo. And uh, Baconberry was a word my youngest sibling used to say all the time. And we were—we've always just been in awe of their like intelligence and tenacity. Like we always joke about them being like the best of all of us. And I thought bringing that metaphor into uh, this show that's about family was really fun. And have it be more about, like, the family of the crew. Because I always thought that, like, a relationship among kids or among siblings is one that doesn't have the kind of, like, foreboding eye of, like, an adult that everybody has to behave for. So the kids actually are able to be more themselves and have fun and make mistakes in a in a way that they wouldn't be able to make mistakes if they were under the watchful eye of like a teacher or like a parent. So uh, the show was a really fun way to like tap back into like just being young and being with like my brother and sister and like them having to come to the conclusion as little kids to be like, oh my God, I don't want to share this cookie, but I think I love you. <laughs> I think I love you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, That's yeah, just the, just the like kid, that kid like um, dilemma. It's so honest and so pure that it's like, yeah you're like fighting for five hours or like my niece and nephew will be fighting for like two hours. And then by the end of it, without you intervening, they'll be like, I'm sorry. Okay. I just need a nap. And you're like, yo, that's so, that's so real. That's very real. (laughs) You know? So tapping into that with the show really felt like natural. And to be honest, those are all the skills I use in my adult life. It's like everything I learned, like, just like, with my friends as a kid, like what felt like a good thing to do, what felt like a bad thing to do, what was a funny day, you know what I mean? So it's been a really fun ride to kind of jump back into those concepts during the making of the show.
2: Nice, nice, yeah. So I mean, Jima Gariba, I wanna thank you for coming on the show, man. Like this, you know, Big Blue, it's this uh, great animated sci-fi comedy series. It's making its world premiere in Canada on CBC Kids and CBC Gem. Beginning Saturday, December fourth. You heard that? Saturday, December the fourth onwards. So you all, all of our listeners, go tune in. Support Jima's work. Support Big Blue. It's 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 just an amazing uh, series. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Jima.
1: Thank you guys so much. This has been an honor.
0: So welcome back to our very last tea segment our third season. Um, The Toronto Star published a piece critiquing activist Desmond Cole, which I found really interesting considering how much Desmond's done for the paper and the way he was well, the way he left the paper, but you know, these people, they just have no shame. Um, and the article was written by Royson James, again, not my favorite writer in the world, but apparently I'm not his either because he critiqued my article. And whenever people write about my writing, I'm like, oh my God, I feel so special because it was from three years ago. So I'm like, I just feel like Royson's like at home reading my writing in bed. So shout out to you, Royson. But Dalton, did you get to read the article? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I
2: checked it out. Yeah. Um, I met Royce uh, when I was uh, an editor at this magazine called Ward Magazine many years mm-hmm. ago, and uh, so he's like an OG. He's
0: like a mentor in and- these streets. Well, so I thought.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, he is. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of people sort of came up under Royce and James.
0: I, I didn't. I wish I could have done that, but I didn't. So the article, the title. Let's do the title, and then let's talk to the serious points of it because there's a lot of serious points of the article. So it is called "The Divisive Activism of Desmond Cole." Colen for dramatic pause. How a campaign against a Black judge... Ooh, Black is capitalized. Thanks, Star. Shattered Toronto's Black community. So... 18-minute read. He's not lying. It's 18 minutes, but I think we got to go with two points. And the two points I wanted to talk about was when Royson talked about, this is all about community and interfighting, and that's why white people are like, yeah, like they love to see us arguing, but I actually think this is, a, this is what community means, um, despite what Royson's saying. So I want to talk about when he was talking about love, when he was trying to call, um, call I guess, um, Desmond in or out. And then I want to talk about um, what he says about Donald McLeod, because I think that's a big meaty part of the argument. Okay? Absolutely. Okay, so the first quote about love. Ch-ch-ch-ch. You can love coal in the Christian sense of loving your brother or your enemy, even though we're not all Christians, and I'm not. So I'm like, what? But I'm going to continue. Like, though, is a term of endearment. To a growing number of African Canadians, Cole is anything but likable. I didn't know we had to be likable. Sorry, this isn't like 1950. Mainstream media treat coal as a go-to talking head on racism. Again, Hater. Um, progressive white folks by the thousands, I agree, follow him on Twitter, and allies of black causes embrace this award-winning author, thank you, and social media influencer. He's not an influencer. People who are influencers, that's their job. Desmond does not sell products. But at a number of dinner tables where curried goat or roti trump steak and potatoes, I'm so hungry now because I do both, in many barbershops. Don't know because I'm not a man, but thanks. Healing circles and prayer groups, again, we're not all religious. Cole is a daily, daily chewed up and spat out. So you guys have, I mean, when I say you guys, I mean the community he's talking about because I'm in the community too, like despite what he's saying. And like this whole like barbershop, hetero patriarchal thing he's talking about, is true, I am shut out of it. But you guys have been using him as a chew toy. And I want, when I say you guys, I'm not talking to you Dalton. I'm not talking to every single black man in this city, but I'm talking to black Canadians in general who don't like Desmond. If you don't like somebody, that's fine. But like that's not liking somebody is not a reason to not like their work. So I think there's a lot of conflating there. But Cole has been a, a chew toy. So I'm glad that Royson admitted that. And Desmond actually tweeted, I think this may be his only response to the article. And I wanted to make this connection because he tweeted on November 9th, which I guess was a couple of days after the article came out. I don't know if we mentioned when it came out. It was last Sunday. He goes, when that writer spoke of love in his attack piece, he told on himself, love me when I put myself at risk for Black folks, but hates criticisms of the, oh my God, I just said that, of the heteropatriarchal seat at the table Black leadership that leaves so many of us behind. That's not love, fam. You can keep it. So again, I agree. And as somebody who Royson has not mentored or brought up or helped and who just happens to be a part of the community, like I'm, I deeply apologize if you don't think because I'm not eating roti with you and getting my hair cut. I'm not a part of it. I am. That's why you quoted me in the article, Royson. And um, he critiqued me and basically said this article I wrote in McLean's with Lincoln Anthony Blades three years ago. Um, he said we sounded arrogant when he quoted us. I won't read the quote because it's super long. And if you think that's arrogant, that's totally fine because I'm not sitting here reading your writing from three years ago. But what do you think, Dalton? What do you think about completing love like that? Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, th-
2: I th- again, Royston is a uh, very, you know, well very well respected in the, in the black community and some segments of the black community. Um, And we are a heterogeneous community just like any other community. Yep. So, you know, so for me, I, you know, I fully expect a wide range of, uh, on, of hot takes on, on what advancement really means. And uh, I think there's always going to be a uh, Generational divide and rift. And uh I, I think with social, my, I mean, my You think, my you think, think is, it's
0: age, you think it's generation.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think generation, that what I would say is, uh, I think is, you know, I see sort of like Generation X, like Gen- Generation Z and millennial activists, uh, there's some parts of what, what you know, I, I, I feel like there's some distrust oh, of the. Like people that call themselves
0: activists, because Desmond doesn't call himself an activist, other people do that. That's just a projection. Or do you just mean people that care about stuff? Like I don't consider myself an activist, but like Royson probably would.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think uh, so. I think there's a bit of distrust on both sides. The same goes in reverse. Just to give you an example, I, I uh, you know, it's a bit of uh, like it's like social media. Let's let's look at social media. So a lot of the mm-hmm. uh, activists of uh, you know Generation X, uh, baby boomers. Um, there was no real kind of like social media circus kind of thing, so it's kind of like um, mm-hmm. social media has created a bit of this invisible wall where there were much of the talking is being done behind keyboards. Whereas but that's how people are uh, like, getting their work
0: done, but that's how people are sharing their work. So like that's you're saying that like he could argue that Jasmine could be a keyboard warrior even though he wrote a best selling book. And I has know, like 80,000 followers on Twitter. No, I'm just saying you know, some people No, like, that's
2: not me. No, I don't think that. No, no, uh, no, no, but let let I'm just saying just, that whole, yeah.
0: when, they, when people talk about millennials and tweeting and all that kind of stuff, like that's to me what they're talking about. But then you'll see the women of The View be like, oh, I don't like Twitter and all these high profile people on all these shows that I want to be on talking bad about Twitter. Then you go on their Twitter, they have 100,000 followers, they have a million followers and they need them. So it's just like, what are we really talking about here? I just feel like this whole language of protest, it is happening on social media for a lot of young people that have to be at their computers, that sometimes live in countries where you can't go to the streets. So I just feel like if we're going to critique social media, like let's all participate in it and realize that there are bad, you know, there's Facebook, which is like an evil empire, but there's also Twitter where people are sharing news.
2: Right. Okay. My, my critique of social media, I mean, I'm super active on social media and love social media, but I think it has created this invisible wall where, where too much of the talking is being done behind keyboards, whereas it might be a good idea um, to sit in a room face-to-face and hammer out something that looks like an agenda for the advancement of black people in, in this country. Um, and so sometimes, uh, you know, when I'm on Twitter, I see people going at it. I'm just like, yeah, have these two ever actually sat down at, you know, <laughs> or on the phone or on Zoom? And the oh answer is no. Um, no, they haven't. So Many of these people, they haven't even spoken to one another, right? They're speaking, so which is sad to me, but anyways. Well,
0: that's the thing. It's so interesting you say that because when I used to work in the community and I actually used to go to these meetings and meet people face-to-face, we'd still go at it online a week later. But I absolutely think we need we do need to do both. But yeah, this isn't 1990. Like, we're, we're able to talk at, talk to each other more. Like, we used to have to wait as a community, even when I was working in it, and I'm still relatively new, two, three weeks to have a meeting, a month to meet with the government. Like, yeah, now we talk.
2: Yeah, yeah, a, yeah. So talking to one another, I, I think across generations, I think that's a, it's a healthy approach. And the part, the social media, you know, my critique is, you know, or I can reference there's a, one of my favorite books. It's a, by Ralph Ellison. It's called Invisible Man. And uh, there's a section in it called the Battle Royal. And uh, it, it's a scene, it's, a, it's an interesting scene in, you know, the narrator basically arrives and receives instructions, to take part in this battle royal. And what what ends up happening, you know, just in the two second version, is that these two black men are beating each other to a pulp, much to the enjoyment of their white male observers. Um, so there's so there's a lot of this kind of you know battle royal kind of feeling, uh, you know, when it comes to in looking this? at the Toronto black activism. On,
0: that's what they're doing on Twitter. That's so
2: great. No, that's what it feels like to me. So, wow. like I said, I'd, I would be great for you know people to kind of just actually talk to one another. and Just kind of you know, that would be awesome.
0: Yeah, I mean, as a community, I'm not, I'm not, con- I'm not concerned about that. Like, I don't, I don't read things like this. to think these guys don't talk, like, but because I'm a part of the community, I just feel like we kind of. But maybe, maybe I'm. I don't know. Maybe I, I think the community exists that doesn't. Like, I just thought that we're allowed to. You know, voice our opinion and be different. But, but for me, being different and having a diversity of thought and talking through them, that's like top five for me in terms of community. It's oh, important awesome. to me And the way Royson frames it as a negative. So I think that's why um, I don't agree with so many things in the piece. But I really want to get to the Donald McLeod piece because I think it's important. I don't want us to run out of time. So why don't you read the Donald quote?
2: Okay. So the collateral damage, the collateral damage runs wide and deep. It has had an impact in quelling the volunteer participation of some people who are just not prepared for the attacks, says Craig Wellington, executive director of a new community organization called the Black Opportunity Fund. Call it the coal chill? Cole's more vocal detractors, there are many, surprisingly so, considering his high profile, commendable confrontation of Toronto police carding practices, say they arrived at their negative conclusions about Cole slowly and painfully over years. Many others landed there in a burst of outrage last year, that's when a judicial panel hearing called to determine whether a black judge, Donald McLeod, compromised judicial standards by improperly advocating for black people, revealed that the most serious complainant against McLeod, an allegation of perjury, arose from Cole's own February 2019 blog.
0: Okay. And I think that is extremely important um, for people. So people that want to read this article, Royson focuses on it. And I really like the fact that somebody sat there and took the time to do this because as a community, we've all been talking about Donald, but somebody needed to write it out. So I appreciated that. So Dalton, we've talked about this a lot. What do you think? Oh, by the way, Donald McLeod is an Ontario judge. He's black. Um, and I think he's been sitting at the bench for probably like 10 years, maybe.
2: So Donald McLeod. Yeah, no, he's uh upstanding you know, member of the community. And um, I think uh, there were parts of the community that uh, that felt like, uh, you know, that he was being, you know, that, you know, his role with the Federation, um, there was, a, you know, which is, these mm-hmm. were the charges that were, you know, sort of, you know, held And this is the him.
0: Federation of, what was it called? The Federation, Federation of, Black, of Canadians. Canadians. Black Canadians. This was the whole critique. So I guess Donald had a leadership role there and that was the critique. So just to put that quote in context, that very important quote. So essentially, I think one of the biggest problems, because this did create a lot of discord in the community, um, were people thinking that Desmond being such an active figurehead in the community and Donald being so prominent. And Donald's done so much for the community for so many years. I actually worked for him when I was in law school in first year and second year. He's an amazing, he, well, he was an amazing lawyer. He, he, I think he was trained by Johnny Cochran. Like Donald was just excellent. Um, and it was such a great experience working for him. So he's well-respected for sure. And I think that when people see two men like that going back and forth, not just because they're men, but it could have been women, but just two people that we all respect going back and forth. It's like, where do we stand? And I think a lot of people in the community were upset that it happened because it can be really hurtful to see people doing good who don't agree. And then you see consequences. Like you see, I guess he was talking about in the article, um, what had happened with Donald and there were hearings and there were like all these ethical questions. So that whole process, I believe, was extremely hurtful to not only Donald, but the community, Um, in my opinion. Like that's kind of what I thought we were going through yeah for sure, yeah,
2: and you know, and can you pick sides uh you know, do you pick sides um yeah, I think there yeah, there are a lot of nuances here, there are a lot of um it's it's just a lot more complicated, you know, and I think uh. Uh, again just speaking to just how yeah there's a lot of you know contradictory it's very contradictory this on on all sides like i because you you know mel i'm not like people you know hey dalton are you you know are you right are you left i have issues certainly with uh
0: you zig and right. you're everywhere
2: no but that's what (laughs) i do and i have my own you know like i kind of try to craft my own narrative i'm not picking any side to be honest right because i've Issues on 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 both sides, on all sides, right? But uh, that's you know, I might be in the minority, right? So people they like to do this kind of you know campy kind of like, hey, you know, you, you know, that's not what I do, right? So it's very yeah. tough for me to, yeah. Well, you know?
0: I think I, I think it's nice if we can decide, you know, maybe we didn't take a side. That's why this is still going on, and let's keep talking about it. That's like, right, precisely. I mean, I was yeah. critiquing Donald in my article with McLean's, the one he mentioned. But mm-hmm. if if I didn't know Donald, I wouldn't be able to critique him that way. Like Donald taught me to be that critical it was just different because it was him. So I feel like we're all in this together. Does that sound corny?
2: (laughs) Like, is this kind of, you know, like a Rodney King? Can we all just get along, you know, like after? Yeah, read the uh, article
0: and let's all talk about it. Why not?
2: That's right. Keep the dialogue flowing, you know, and, uh, you know, don't feel any pressure to, yeah, I think this idea of picking sides or like, I I don't know if that's the answer either, you know? Um,
0: I'm all over the place. I can't pick. I can't, I can't. I can't even pick myself. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for this whole season.
2: Yeah, no, thank you. It was a fantastic. Uh, we had some wild. It's a wild ride, you know. Some great conversations, <laughs> great yeah. dialogue being stimulated, and uh, yeah, we're here to provoke, right? We're here to titillate. We're here to stimulate.
0: I always forget that, but yes, thank you, Dalton. No, thank you, Mill. Thank you so much for joining us this episode. And um, we'd like to give a special shout out to our super producer, Kevin Sexton, our showrunner, Clara Broussard and Ryan Clark, who's been doing our sound mixing. We really appreciate all of you.
2: And remember, listeners, uh, go on the Apple store and uh, write reviews, Um, rate us. Um, This is the stuff. uh, This is the type of feedback we need because we know we're we know we're doing a great job, but we need to hear back from you.